Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Hi, this is Eric Schwartzman, your host for the PRSA International Conference podcast series, and it's my distinct honor to welcome someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. His name is Chris Brogan, and he's president of Human Business Works, co-founder of PodCamp, uh, a blogger at chrisbrogan.com, a New York Times best-selling author, and a monthly columnist for Entrepreneur. He is confirmed to appear as a keynote presenter at the PRSA 2011 International Conference in Orlando on Tuesday, October 18th. I had actually tried to interview him on an Osprey flight over Boston, courtesy of the United States Marine Corps, but he was unavailable largely because his wisdom and insight have earned him a seat on a rocket ship to the moon. Chris Brogan, welcome. I am so happy to be with you, Eric. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Now, your keynote at the PRSA 2011 International Conference is titled The Changing Role of the Trust Agent, and I want to talk about that. But first, let's just talk about trust agents. Um, you know, what is a trust agent? Why are they important to organizations? And why do you think your book, Trust Agents with Julian Smith, went on to become a New York Times bestseller? Let's handle that in reverse order, Eric. First off, it became a New York Times bestseller because it was a really slow week that week. Uh, I was utterly lucky. And... Uh, I would say that it's you know just magic. One thing I would tell you about the whole experience is that um, the opportunity in becoming a trust agent is pretty huge. So what I think is, uh, with regards to it, a trust agent is the kind of person who is the voice of a business, is sort of the face of a business, but not necessarily the C-level person. Uh, for example, in Google, uh, even though there's people like Marissa, mayor who's kind of one of the top marketing people inside of the company. There's Larry Page, there's Sergey Brin. We're not going to talk to those people that often, but we will talk to somebody like a Matt Cutts, who's the chief spam czar at uh, Google. Matt becomes sort of a de facto trust agent because he's active on all the social networks. He's on Google+, Plus. he's on Twitter and Facebook, and he's the guy you can reach out to if you have a Google-related question, even though it's not really his bailiwick. So we're seeing lots more of that. We're seeing lots of companies that use the social web to build communications channels to help uh, humanize the experience for companies and people. Chris, in the book, you suggest that people make a habit of publishing their thoughts. And I want to drill down for a minute on the personality and style of sharing. Now, now you and I can talk about engagement until the cows come home, but even today, most corporate websites, Facebook pages, and Twitter feeds generally do a better job stroking corporate egos than delivering on the needs of their customers, right? Typically, those that get it right are the exceptions. Now, when we share thoughts, it's only natural that some are positive and some are negative. But the challenge with conventional PR is that it's sort of the impulse to spin a silver lining around even the most daunting situations which mm -hmm. makes authenticity tough, obviously. So if you're in PR, the takeaway is if you're too positive, no one believes you. But if you're too negative, old school disengaged managers who don't use social media and don't understand it may see that negativity or infallibility as a sign of weakness that will ultimately tarnish their brand. 
So if we're too positive, we're written off as shills. And if we're too negative, we're going to get fired by a manager who still thinks they can control the message. So how can PR people please their managers and clients and earn the trust of the online community at the same time? Eric, you couldn't have asked the question any better. I guess the way I would want to look at it is look at it like a relationship at home. You are never right 100% of the time. There is never a time in your relationship with your significant other that you're going to say, well, darling, of course I didn't bring out the trash, you know, and uh, make it true. So, I mean, we have to learn this. This is, this is something basic. I learned it in restauranting, and the restauranting business taught me this from Disney Corporation, and that's the three A's. That's a, acknowledge, apologize, and act. If you've got a problem, acknowledge that it was a problem. And PR was trained to turn that around and say, you know, here's the spin. You know, here's how we're going to you know, cover this thing up. Here's how we're going to make it seem like it was the way we meant to do it. But that's just not working anymore. One reason it doesn't work is that because in the two-way web and all these various social networks, people can experience and explain what they had happen. And it can't be covered anymore. I mean, way back in 2005, this happened with Dell Hell. Jeff Jarvis reports a problem with his Dell Latitude laptop. Everyone else seems to have the problem. Next thing you know, Dell doesn't even rank for Dell on, the, on Google anymore. It's, it's all about this negative problem that people were having. And that's sort of the, the shot heard around the world for when businesses realized that they had to actually be a lot more uh, authentic and open in how they're going to have their conversation. Now, how do you do it and how do you make the leadership take notice of there's just so many case studies out there that you can point to. There's stuff that happened with Best Buy. There's stuff that happened with Nestle. There's tons of stuff that happened with Walmart. And all of these companies are you know, reasonable companies trying to do a good thing just like anybody else, but have run into that situation where you know, because of using the traditional means of communication where in which everything is wonderful and everything is glossed over, they found themselves in a bad corner. So I'd say, Eric, that uh, there's just a lot of case studies to show the boss that it'd be a lot better to try to be authentic. And you just have to learn it and understand what authentic means to your organization, meaning you've got to get with legal and understand what you can and can't say about something. You've got to understand you know, how to apologize and acknowledge something without seeming like an absolute horrible person. But you, you know, there is a blend, and I think that's where people are heading now. Chris, I used to be in entertainment PR. And in the world of celebrities and personalities, we used to actually try to limit the exposure of our clients to coincide with a film release or an album release or a book release. And the idea was that there was this sort of danger in overexposure and that some degree of exclusivity actually served to prime demand. And uh, on another note, you know, Jeremiah Oyang said recently that if we respond to customer complaints via social media, we're actually rewarding the wrong kind of behavior and falling into a trap. So, so is there a danger of being too available via social media? It's a really good question, Eric. I would say that, of course, there is. Uh, I mean, if your clients aren't media trained, for example, one of the differences with social media is that a lot of people are taking the message right to the street themselves. And that's great. And PR professionals need to not you know, fear that. But what they do need to do is get into the media training mode. I think there's a huge future in PR professionals training, you know, their clients to be better media handlers and to understand how best to handle that. And one reason is, I mean, there's a lot of people who are, are kind of shirking their agents and sort of taking the story directly to themselves. One example in the entertainment industry was Kanye West. He was sick of people spinning the Taylor Swift story their way. 
and he decided he'd take it to Twitter himself. And he got a lot of coverage for it and a lot of credit, and he got a lot of positive uh, sentiment change in what he did. And I think that's a great case study for showing how someone can pick up their own brand and work with it. But the role in, the, in, in PRSA land of a PR professional in that case is to educate them and get them to a better speed on how to do that sort of thing themselves. And or, you know, there is still a chance and a worry for overexposure, and you do have to explain the pluses and minuses of when to come out and when not. But just understand that people are going to take that action and that it's a matter of understanding what they're going to do next. I spoke with Joe Ciarella of Buddy Media about their study on what makes an effective wall post. And they found that promotional language is the kiss of death. Now, in Trust Agents, you wrote, the web is very open to embracing new people as long as they're not selling anyone anything. But Frank Eliason has asserted that you can earn the right to sell once people know you. So how should organizations decide what percentage of their shares can be sales-oriented? It's a great question. I tend to tell people something like a 12 to 1 rule. And when I say that, I want people to promote other people's stuff almost 12 times as much as they promote other people's stuff. And the reason is that the more uh, uh, 12 times as much other people's stuff as they do their own stuff. And the reason I say that, Eric, is because I think that the idea is you have to show that not just your material is worth it, not just your information is what's going to go across. You have to do your best to kind of build and earn that relationship. Frank is right. I mean, Dell earned that that opportunity. Comcast has earned that opportunity over time. Um, Frank works for City right now, and I would say that he's earning it slowly back over time. And I, I would say that it, because it's a very opt-in world, I mean, Twitter and Facebook and Google Plus and all these social networks are a very opt-in world now. So you have to earn the right to, to have those relationships. It does matter. But I mean, the, the truth is people really don't want to be sold to, but they love to buy. So if you're doing something to help solve a business problem for them, if you're helping them solve some kind of a situation, and your product or service is the right product, it's a great way to do it. Here's the real win, and it's a situation where you have to tread gently, and you have to explain to your leadership that it's going to happen. There's times when your product isn't the right product. There's times when you should recommend the competitor, the sort of Macy's Gimbel's, you know, in Miracle 34th Street uh, scenario. I would say that when you have that moment, when you have that great opportunity to, to refer the competitor, uh, provided you have the support inside your organization, it's a huge opportunity for a win, and I think more companies should take advantage of it. Let's talk about, uh, you know, Frank's current challenge. Uh, because he essentially has moved over to a company that is too big to fail. And we're surrounded now, you know, on a global scale by these companies that are so big that, uh, you know, th they simply can't go under. They're not in competitive markets. So when you think about healthcare providers or, you know, utilities or, you know, uh, the financial services industry, any of these businesses that are now so big that there really isn't a lot of choice on the consumer side, does social media really matter at a company like that? It's a really good question. I would say that it's it, it's tricky because I would say that the the opportunity is to to build a real live relationship. I mean, do they need it? They probably don't need it, and and there's probably not a really simple, easy return on investment that people can point to to show that that's what one should be doing or not doing with their time. I guess what I would say though is I would say that in so doing, in so making that uh, the connection or whatever, 
uh, Frank does have the opportunity to kind of build future uh, credibility. Frank does have the opportunity to start getting some positive press, and that's what he did with Comcast. Comcast, you know, technically is you know the market. There's not a lot of competition in most of the markets where where it does business, and Frank turned around their uh, positive approval rating inside their customer service, which is you know direct money to their bottom line. I think that's what he's trying to work at uh, with City. Uh, but I agree with you that the challenge is a little different for him there, and I think that you know there will be some positive possible opportunities for a plus, but there's a lot more uh, margin for error there, as you might have lent yourself to say. We're talking to Chris Brogan. He's the president of Human Business Works, and when we return, he's going to tell us how he keeps up with online conversations, how to share without getting burned, and how the role of the trust agent has changed since he first published his New York Times best-selling book. Trust Agents with Julian Smith. Stay with us. What I had seen was, you know, you could do these webinars for an hour here and two hours there, and it just didn't feel like it was enough. Like it, I just felt like I needed to be more absorbed into something for a couple of days, just completely immerse myself. The hands-on nature was absolutely the home run for me, bringing my laptop. And as you're walking us through something, we are doing it, you know, setting up our own blog or exploring Google Reader or whatever it was, to actually be doing that because certainly I've been to computer-related courses before where you sit there with a book and a piece of paper but not actually plugged in and that was really valuable to me to be doing it as we talked about it so much better retention wise um, so that was good lots of good resources I, I you know bookmarked <laughs> so many things and find myself you know it's over a year later I still refer to those bookmarks and then it was just an interesting combination of people in the room I mean I'm this small tiny little consulting firm and I'm sitting next to the woman from Pepperidge Farms <laughs> and yet I felt like I learned from her and I think she learned from me and of course we all learned from you so it was it was a really neat dynamic of who was in the room even though we were a small group if you're ready to get serious about social media train your people train yourself the war against digital illiteracy will not be won through social media conferences keynotes panel sessions or PowerPoint. What's required is hands-on training. Join me for my upcoming hands-on training tour presented by Social Media Today. This September 2011, I'll be in Sydney, Singapore, London, Paris, Toronto, New York City, Chicago, and San Francisco. There's only 30 slots per session, and you can sign up at www.socialmediabootcamp.com. Now, in social media, relationships are not reciprocal, meaning I may be following you, but that doesn't mean you're following me. Let's talk about this imbalance, which you called one-way intimacy in your book. And you suggested that the way to handle this is by managing expectations, which is something any good PR person will tell you is a huge part of their job. But you're someone who's earned a great deal of personal success so much so that there's no way you could possibly maintain all the one-to-one -one relationships you're invited to. So talk to us about your experience transitioning from a scenario where you personally maxed out and couldn't participate in all the requests for conversations coming your way, how you dealt with that without hurting your own brand, and how you share your insights today without getting buried under an avalanche of you know, direct messages coming your way. It's a, it's a great question and a, and a kind of a good problem to have in some ways. But it is it is frustrating and it is a little bit nerve-wracking because, I mean, I, I would say that very personally to me, the number one feeling I have is sort of, oh, God, here I am in this situation where I hope that I 
you know, don't upset anybody. I don't make anyone think that I, that they think I'm too big to talk back to them or something like that, which is quite far from the truth. So I would say that what I've run into uh, with this is just as best I can, I try to have a system in place. I mean, I have a contact form that kind of goes alongside my, my main email address. Um, and I would say that uh, between that and the opportunity to uh, work with people like I have, a, I have a team here. I have Anne and I have uh, Rob and Diane and all these other people who kind of help me. I mean, everyone gets heard, everyone gets answered, and I still spend as you know a couple hours or so a day, which is not people's normal method, uh, connecting with people directly. I mean. How do you find the time? I mean, first off, I don't watch TV, so that gives me a little extra time. Second off, I'm a little obsessive. Third off, I type really fast. And somewhere between all those different things, I, I do my best to touch as many people as I can. And the answer to why is that, I mean, it, the, just the payoff of it is huge. And I find the same thing happening to me on a different scale. Like, for example, I'll be talking to somebody who's you know a celebrity by anybody's measure. I mean, I'm I'm sort of net famous, which is I can stand up in any coffee shop in America and say, do you know who I am? And most times the answer is no, not really sit down. But, you know, the Alyssa Milano uh, example, for example, or MC Hammer or all these other like famous people, uh, they actually, you know, spend the time to talk back. And I'm thinking if these are professional, you know, entertainment actors and things like that and they can find the time, you can find the time. It's just a matter of prioritizing. So ultimately at the end of the day, Eric, I've decided that a couple hours of my time a day it's worth talking back to everybody and sort of keeping at least light touch going with as many people as possible. Chris, you and Julian wrote that the web game is a decision about what to put online and what not to. Now, in this attention-starved world we live in where patients' thresholds are short and the analysis falls by the wayside in the insatiable quest for what's happening now, are there any guidelines you can offer on how to walk the razor's edge of sharing without getting all cut up? Well, it's a great question, and it sort of depends on one's business. So, for example, if you're in the financial industry, if you're in the legal industry, if you're in uh, pharma, there's a lot more rules placed on you. And I just can't address that in the duration of this podcast, but just understand that it, there's, there's a lot more trickiness, and you really do have to work with your lawyers and your legal team to understand what that's going to be like. Um, what I would say about my situation and, and how I work on sharing is that I try to share over 90% of everything I do for free and on the web. I try to make as much how-to information available that would equip other people for their own business success because I just can't get to all those people anyway. You know, I mean, there's just no way I'm going to get to as many people as message me. So I might as well give as much value away as I can in that stuff so that when I do charge, that 9 or 10% actually covers the rest of the bills. And that's sort of my model right now. What I find is that there's stuff that people think is the good stuff and they're holding on to. And it's, you know, it's informative, but it's not really where they could get their most value. I think where, where the most value is is in customization, is in, you know, taking it from serving suggestions to cooking the meal. I think that, you know, the way a professional PR person would look at this is, you know, give as much away as possible because you're looking for the longer win. And, and PR people, at least traditionally, weren't measured on sales. And I think you should start thinking like that. You should start thinking like a salesperson because the other opportunity is if you're adding to the bottom line, nobody fires, fires you. The more times you could show your client that something you did had a revenue impact, a direct revenue impact, that's way better than how many people liked something on Facebook. So I'm holding a copy of Trust Agents in my hand. And, uh, you know, if you look at Internet Time, uh, this was published in 2009. It's 2011 now. 
So how has the role of the trust agent changed since you published Trust Agents with Julian Smith? Um, so it has changed a little bit. One of the things is that from two years ago to now, we've kind of gone from gee whiz to where's the money. We definitely really want people to uh, uh, show some kind of a real value. And that's when I say we, I mean big business is looking for that. They're looking for some kind of a, you know, a big return on that. And I would say that the, the big opportunity becomes the uh, – person who can start understanding uh, marketing technology and who can sort of show sexy data, so to speak. I think that the sexy data is, can I build a list? Can I do something else? You know, I think there's just, uh, there's just a little bit more opportunity to uh, do something versus just the, uh, hey, I'm here to be, it's kind of like going from being a greeter at Walmart to being a concierge at a hotel. So that's, to me, the big opportunity, and that's what's changed since 2009. The tools have changed a little bit. I mean, I would say that there's a lot more to consider with Google Plus and that sort of thing, but I would say that overall, you've, you've, got, your, uh, you've got your business. Let's talk about that for a minute, because I was um, listening to uh, Media Hacks number 38, Six Pistols of Separation number 262 with Mitch Joel, yourself, and Hugh McGuire this morning, and uh, you're clearly very bullish on Google Plus. Do you think the rules of engagement on Google Plus will be markedly different than they are on Facebook? Huge. And uh, so Google Plus is, you know, for the folks at PRSA who maybe haven't jumped in yet, it's Google's version of a social network, just to make it simple. Um, it's similar to Facebook, except a lot of the differences are why I'm bullish. One is Google is the number one search engine in the world. All of the stuff inside of Google Plus is indexed, which means that it's already coming a lot faster to search results. You can see lots of Google Plus search results from the early adopters, the first 10 million people using it. Uh, two, Facebook is built on this inclusive model. Do I know you? If yes, then I'll let you into my circle. Google Plus is built on the, you know, you can make it as public or as private as you want, but we'll leave that up to you. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity inside of Google Plus to build a lot more relationships and do cool stuff. I've already seen it become the number one referrer of people to my site. On Twitter, 189,000 people follow me. On Google Plus, 17,000 people follow me. And I'm still getting more traffic from Google Plus right now than I am on Twitter. So even if I'm a little bit more engaged on Google Plus lately, I still am tweeting links to my site. And the metrics and measurements I'm getting are saying that the engagement level is far deeper on Google Plus than it ever was on Twitter. Why do you think that is? I would say partly that there's a bunch of people who have shown up inside of Google Plus who are very interested in a deeper level of engagement. I'd say that the tool inside of Google Plus versus Twitter and partly versus Facebook is a much better tool for getting that kind of engagement going. And so I would say that uh, people are a little bit gee whiz about it, so they're they're actively taking more action in it. And I would say that secondly, there's a lot more opportunity inside Google Plus for people to uh, sort of follow up and, and keep the conversation going, whereas Twitter feels like a stream and Facebook feels like, you know, you have to actually search for the good stuff. So I think there's a huge, huge possible business opportunity here, and I'm, I'm pushing it pretty hard. Now, you mentioned in Six Pixels of Separation, uh, number 262, Media Hacks, number 38, that, you know, you actually stand a profit if, um, if, uh, if Google Plus makes it. What did you mean? Well, uh, so... First off, I think that Google Plus, you know, driving more traffic to my site means that I'm going to start ranking a lot higher just because of my early adoption of Google Plus. I think that a lot of the things that I'm hoping people find me for 
are getting much more reinforced by using the Google Plus tools. Second to that, I would say that uh, there's a there's a business opportunity here because I was early to Twitter. I came into Twitter in the summer of 2006 or the early fall of 2006, and there's a business opportunity uh, because being kind of an early person inside of Google Plus who's already logged over 250 hours, I can show a lot of businesses what to do next. And I would say that you know there's an opportunity there for me. If for some reason um, that drops off then I've made the really wrong bet. I mean, I've already pretty much moved myself off of Facebook, which is, you know, stunning to some people. And what they're giving me back is, well, you know, there's 700 million people on Facebook and there's only tw uh, 10 million on Google+. And I said, yes, absolutely, this week, that's true. Uh, but, you know, I could have said that in 1996 about AOL and you would have said the same thing. So I just think there's a lot of opportunities to uh, do big things with it right now. Chris, final question um, in the dedication of uh, trust agents, you wrote to Cat and the kids who suffer most for my passions. Um, you know, there's got to be a price of being a first mover and of being so engaged on social media. I mean, I've got to think that, you know, you you weren't in on the release date for Google Plus yet. Um, you know, after they decided they were going to release Google Plus and it was available, you hopped on, you know, with both feet and went for it. And who knows, maybe you had personal plans that you had to put aside or maybe there was a, a family event that you couldn't attend. I mean, talk to us a little bit about the work-life balance when it comes to being a first mover and being so engaged. Well, I, I mean, I think there's a very big risk for the whole work-life balance thing, Eric. And I have not done as many you know, I haven't made as many good moves in that case. I mean, I I've, I travel a lot for speaking. Being out everywhere is hard for me because it takes me away from my family and my kids. And, um, you know, I've certainly worn that welcome out a little bit in my household and have definitely had a change over the last several months to, to make sure that I'm home a lot more so that my, you know, kids actually realize who I am. I would say that... Um, the thing is, by being a first mover, by getting there and, and really logging a lot of hours early and, and starting to really do a lot of experimentation and a lot of things to try to solve what businesses might need out of this platform has lent me kind of sort of an early adoption opportunity. And uh, that's going to pay off for the kids. I mean, that's what the kind of thing I keep explaining over and over again and why I said to Kat and the kids who suffer the most for my passions is, I mean, back in 2004 and 2005 when I was not doing this professionally and I was working at a wireless telecom and this was sort of a side project, you know, I'd be up till 2, 3 in the morning editing podcasts and things like that. And, you know, they were the people who had to suffer for that. And eventually it became a way that I made my living and it, and it continues to be a way that I've helped other businesses do good stuff. But, you know, work-life balance, you, you really do have to keep your eye on it. You really do have to. I mean, there's no such thing as balance, but you have to put your investments in. And if you're not making an investment in your home life, it will come up and slap you really fast when you're not looking. And it just continues to be something that you need to... Uh, it seems almost crass to say you need to schedule it, Eric, but I would say that if you're not really keeping track of your calendar and making sure you're putting in time for your family, then you really run the risk very quickly of not doing that. Uh, really a delight to get to talk to you and uh, do this interview. So thank you for taking the time. It was totally a pleasure. Thanks, and thanks for all the great preparation you did in conducting the interview. And thank you for joining us today. This has been Eric Schwartzman of On the Record Online, the official podcast of the PRSA International Conference. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. 
to subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.